God, thank you for today and for this word on this day. You know all the things that our hearts need today. All the ways that we are weak and tempted. The things that we are believing, forgetting, trusting. And we pray that your word would have its full effect on us today. Encourage us, convict us, help us, strengthen us. That we might be all the more obedient that our affections would be refreshed for you today, that our doctrine would be tightened, that our minds would be filled with wonder. And we pray this as we fix our eyes on Christ in your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Christ is there for us. Christ is there for us. This is what Stephen's sermon, the vision that he sees in his death, is what they mean to us. Christ is there for us. Stephen looked into the heavens and saw, as Megan read in 756, Stephen saw, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. By the time Acts was written, the church would have been immersed in immense persecution from government and religious sectors. Acts would have landed in the hands of troubled, dispersed, anxious, and weary Christians. Perhaps you too are weary. Perhaps you too feel the darkness of the world that we live in. You feel like it's closing in, in one way or another. Today, remember that Christ is there for us. The situation here in Acts 7 is the culmination of things only getting worse over the last few chapters. It went from the temple guards being annoyed in chapter 4 verse 1 to breathing threats in chapter 4, verse 21, to becoming personally jealous in chapter 5, verse 17. And by chapter 5, verse 33, the temple officials were enraged and wanted to kill the officials. As we see today when they heard Stephen's message, they wanted to kill him and they were gritting their teeth, gnashing their teeth with anger. Pressure and outrage over the followers of Jesus refusing to stop talking about Jesus had come to a fever pitch in Jerusalem. What does the church need to know? What brings assurance and comfort? What motivates endurance? Seeing what Stephen saw Christ there for us. Christ there at the right hand of God for us. This is a doctrine, I think, which is often, sadly, minimized, maybe unknown to us. 
Christ in the presence of God in heaven. You think about that. Do you ever just kind of ask yourself, why did Jesus leave? Hey, Jesus resurrected from the dead. Where is Jesus? What's he doing? Does it really even matter where he is? Maybe you're frustrated that he's not here. doesn't make any sense to you. As it turns out, where Christ is now, where he went, is the gospel to us. It's the good news to us. It matters significantly. It is not an add-on, simple historical fact. It is part of the gospel, the good news of the entire Bible to us. So my aim today is that you would actually look to see Christ there for us at the right hand of the Father in heaven and have some sense of what that means for us. What it does for us. What it means that Christ went there in the first place. This is what Stephen saw. This is the climax of the end of chapter 6 and verse 7. What Megan read for us in chapter 7 verse 54 to 58. Stephen is about to be stoned. He's in front of the temple court officials... They are blaming him for blasphemy. He basically sealed his own fate with his sermon there. And to make all matters even worse, after he got done calling them stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart, then he cried out, I see the heavens opened, and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I see Jesus in heaven at the right hand of God on His throne. And they were like little children. They put their hands on their ears. They didn't want to hear Him say that anymore. Jesus is somehow alive and standing next to God. And it is to us, I think, should be one of the most precious doctrines in the Bible. It is the culmination, essentially, of the gospel. Today we're going to see, in chapter 6 and 7, why it is they couldn't see. Why it is that they could not see Christ as risen from the dead. Christ at the right hand of the throne of God. And we're going to see exactly what it meant for Stephen to see Christ at the right hand of the throne of God. Why couldn't they see? And what was it exactly? What did it mean for Stephen to see Christ at the right hand of God? Why could they not see see as Stephen did? Understand, you don't have to see Christ in order to see Him, in order to believe in Him the way that Stephen did. And you don't have to not be able to see Christ physically with your eyes to miss Him like they missed Him. Their problem was not that they somehow could not see the vision that Stephen was seeing when he looked up into heaven. Their problem was an internal problem. Look in Acts 7, verse 51 to 53. The very last paragraph in Stephen's message to them. He explains to them what their problem is. And it is not that Christ has not revealed himself to them, in a sense. Look what he says, 7, 51, 53. 
He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so you do. Which of the prophets of your fathers did you not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you, the righteous one, Christ, you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels, and you did not keep it. We would tend to refer to this as depravity. 2 Corinthians 4 uses the phrase, Paul is describing the same thing, those who are disbelieving in Jesus and so are going to be judged. Paul says in, the case, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Stephen is getting at what Paul teaches, that this is a spiritual inward blindness. A spiritual inward blindness that can have the eyes in their sockets on all the evidence in the world, all the signs and wonders, all the glory of God wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ and say, meh. That's hard-heartedness. Imagine someone sitting before the most amazing feast that you can imagine. A table full of food. Steaks, mashed potatoes, desserts, drinks. And they just look at it and go, eh, not really hungry. That's how Jeremiah talked about the absurdity of the people of Israel and the Old Testament. Jeremiah says, They left God for idols, which was like leaving a a spring of fresh water and running out into the desert and making your own well in the dry desert of the ground and and sticking your face in there and trying to suck water out of the desert ground. It's absurd. It's depraved. It doesn't make any sense. It's, It's crazy to make that move. This is kind of how Stephen is talking about those who are rejecting Christ, they have uncircumcised heart and ears. It's not that you have an outward religious problem, it's that you have an inward heart and ear problem. You can't. You don't want to. I wonder if we don't see a picture of what this is like in the Titanic submersible. I certainly don't want to make light of this very recent situation by using this as an illustration, but it's extremely poignant. On July, or sorry, on June 18th, five passengers, as you may know, died in a tourist submarine. It was meant to visit the Titanic on the floor of the ocean. The story really isn't just that an accident happened and five people died. The story is really that the vessel was unsafe and should never have gone down in the beginning. Multiple articles have begun to report multiple problems with this trip, such as Prior to this launch, there were lawsuits and industry experts who had raised serious safety concerns. In 2018, a professional group warned publicly that Ocean Gate's experimental approach to the design of their vessel could lead to, quote, catastrophic outcomes. That same year, 2018, an employee from OceanGate raised safety concerns about the Titan's design and the company's testing protocol. That employee, David Lockridge, was fired. Just this year, however, Stockton Rush, the CEO of OceanGate, who designed the vessel and was himself in the vessel, was recorded to have lowered the price 
They recruited tourists saying that this trip is, quote, way safer than flying a helicopter or even scuba diving. When we listen to that, it's, it's hard to think, why don't you just listen? Why don't you hear? Why are your ears so closed to the truth? Doesn't seem like it was money motivating him. Maybe he was overtaking with the ambition of adventure. Maybe he was just proud to admit that his design was faulty and might fail. Regardless, now it seems absolutely crazy to have listened to him. Stephen's whole point in the sermon is the Jewish leaders had a heart like this. They had ears like this. They don't listen. They don't want to listen. They can't hear. In his speech, Stephen reminds them that their rejection of Jesus is just as absurd as their forefathers rejecting Moses. I mean, I don't know if you remember this, but the the forefathers, those who were with Moses during his time, they weren't exactly first really excited about Moses. They rejected him. Go back in Stephen's speech, is Acts chapter 7, verse 33 to 39. Stephen mentions there, there are multiple things that were going on in Moses' life that validated him as a prophet, as, a, as the man of God. And they rejected him anyway. Look at what he says, Acts 7, 33, 39. Let's make sure we don't miss this. And the Lord said to Moses, Stephen's recounting history, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them, and now come, and I will send you to Egypt. Now listen to Stephen just layer the reasons they should not have rejected Moses. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and a judge? They're looking at Moses going, Who made you ruler and judge? Who Really? What does Stephen say? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. God did. That's who. This man, Stephen is laying it on, this man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea in the wilderness and for 40 years This is the Moses. Look, he says in verse 37, This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. He predicted Jesus. Deuteronomy 18. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He was on Mount Sinai in God's presence. He received the living oracles. God gave him the Ten Commandments and the law and the tabernacle instructions. He received them himself from God. But look at verse 39. What did they do? Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, do you see where? It was in their hearts. They turned to Egypt. 
there's a moment when they actually said to Moses, did Jesus bring us out here to kill us? I think we should just go back to Egypt. At least we had food there. Moses did all the signs, all the wonders, and Stephen reminds them, be very careful, your forefathers rejected Moses and all the miracles that Moses did, and they thrust him aside. Stephen's point was, that's what you're doing. That's what you're doing. You can be circumcised in the flesh. You can do all the religious things like Aaron was praying for us and confessing this morning. That's not the same as having an inward heart change. Jesus came doing signs and wonders. He was born of a virgin. He walked on water. He stilled the waves. He fed 5,000. He healed the lame and raised the dead. He raised from the dead himself. And we could go on and on. And they still rejected Jesus. People still reject him today. People still thrust Jesus aside today. As if he's nothing. What's the problem? Stephen sums it up this way. You stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart, you always resist in ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. What's keeping you from believing in Christ today? Did you walk in the door believing and trusting in Christ today? Might you know that it's not just an outward problem, that you need more. You need to see something. You need to hear something. It might be that there are many things that you could hear, but there's actually a problem inside. There's a heart inside. There are ears that don't want to hear because they sound like it sounds like condemnation when you tell others who are about Christ and you tell them about Jesus, the wonders that Jesus has done, the meaning of Jesus dying on the cross, and, and they don't hear. Why is that? What's stopping them from believing? Some people say, I wish I could see more signs, I wish I could get a word from God, something special that I could see. Something like all the things that Jesus did. And they still hated him. They were there, they saw it, and they hated it, and they gritted their teeth. And as Stephen reminded them, the righteous one whom you killed and murdered. It's not that you can see and there just isn't anything to see. It's that people can't see. There's spiritual deafness. That's what it means to be uncircumcised of heart. You, you don't have a, a covenant-cut heart. You don't have covenant ears so you miss the covenant Christ. The great problem with mankind is not that God has not shown himself or Christ to us, but that he has shown himself immensely. But our hearts and our minds are uncircumcised. Recognize the meaning of this phrase, stiff-necked. Someone who's stubborn. They stay mad. They won't turn their head for anything. Friends, if you're here today and you're an unbeliever, you're not trusting in Christ, and you want to, you're eager to, you don't know, then cry out to the Lord. Cry out to God in prayer. Help me see. Help me believe. Help me trust. Help me know with my heart. Help me see what is there. What it ultimately means to see is not just to see like Stephen did in the vision, but to actually have faith. Actually see with the heart of your eyes that Christ who is there, who was real, who did die, who did raise, that He is the Christ, that He is risen from the dead. And if you trust in Him, your sins will be forgiven. Seeing His faith in Christianity. If you're a believer, trusting in Christ, and you've come to see that Jesus is the Son of God and trust Him and love Him, 
be very thankful and humble. Thank God. What is keeping you from having been stuck in stiff, stiff neck and uncircumcised hearts and ears? If you have faith, thank God that your heart has so been softened to know Him, to see Him, to hear Him, to recognize Christ. And as you go share the gospel with others, just remember there may be some who have and will remain with uncircumcised hearts and ears and eyes. Trust the Lord. Leave this to the Lord. What Stephen does here is show the reason that they cannot see is an inward problem. An inward problem. The stiff neck, the uncircumcised heart. But if you have a heart, and you have ears, and you have eyes spiritually to see, what you will see is that Christ is the Son of the living God, that He died on the cross for your sins, and that He is now in heaven for you. The unifying theme in all of Stephen's speech is that God is not stuck being localized in an earthly temple and that Christ now stands at the right hand of God's throne in heaven. Look how Stephen starts. Go back to chapter 7, verse 2. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Where did God appear to Abraham? At the side of the temple? In Israel? No, it was, it was Mesopotamia. It was Iran. It was Syria somewhere. God met Abraham out there way before even Abraham even knew where there the temple was. Look at chapter 7, verse 9 through 10, 7 chapter 9. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, his brothers. Remember, they sold him into Egypt. But what does it say? God says, or Stephen says, but God was with Joseph. God was with him. And where was God when Israel was in the wilderness? Chapter 7, verse 44. He was with them in the tabernacle, in the tent. That mobile tent, wandering around the desert until they got to the place, the promised land with Joshua. And eventually, God's presence is in the temple. And Solomon built. As you keep reading in chapter 7, we get to the temple, which actually gets to the least mention of any of the places that God is in this chapter. He was with them all the way. He was with them with Abraham. He was with them with Joseph. He was with them with Joshua and Moses and then David and then Solomon. He was with them all the way. But look at Acts 7, 48 through 50. This is... Stephen's statement about God being with his people. Acts 7, 48 through 50. Yet, we got a temple built, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Do you get the picture? Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Earth is not my throne with you know, bring me a footstool. Earth is my footstool. Heaven is the throne. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Can you, can you imagine telling God you're going to build a house for him? Oh, with all the stuff that I, uh, that I made? Thank you so much. I don't know what I would have done without that. 
They're accusing Stephen of teaching that Jesus is going to come destroy the temple. And that would be blasphemy. Because that's the house of the Lord, right? That's where God dwells with his people. That's the whole point of the temple. That's the holy temple where priests go into the holy of holies, where sacrifices are made so that Israel can be right with God. So, so to get the idea that Stephen's running around preaching, saying Jesus is going to destroy that temple and, and start a, a new religion, that's blasphemy against everything that's good and holy in Israel. But Stephen entirely erodes that concern by suggesting God never lived there to begin with. Can you imagine the gall God was in Mesopotamia with Abraham, guys. God was with Joseph in Egypt. He was in the wilderness with Moses. He was in the tabernacle with Joshua and then the temple with Solomon. But God is not like your ancient, normal, run-of-the-mill, pagan God invented by man, designed in buildings, represented by a statue. God's not like a God who is confined to a certain land or a certain building or a certain place. God's throne is in heaven. In heaven. This means God is transcendent. That is, He is above and He is beyond everything. Even the confines of the earth itself and creation itself. Has not God made all things? Stephen reminds us. This is a fundamental encouragement for the Christian. God is not localized to any place on earth. God is not more available over here, not more busy over there. He's not busy doing something over there, so He can't come help do something over there. You don't have to go to a place in Israel to know Him or to worship Him. His throne is in heaven. Now, the Christians in the first century are about to see this temple that the the Pharisees and the chief priests are so jealous, gritting their teeth, jealous to protect. It is just a few short years away from being destroyed in 70 AD when Rome comes in, seizes Jerusalem, starving them out, and then raising the city and the temple with fire. As that happens historically, Acts is being written and it's beginning to be dispersed to Christians all over. What is the main point? What is the main point that Stephen sees this right now? Look at what Stephen sees in chapter 7, verse 55. The chapter ends with Stephen seeing the glory of God. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed not into the temple, but into heaven. And he saw the glory of God. Christians, how much of our trouble is just trouble in this world? How much of our trouble is trouble that is in the flesh and about the flesh and about worldly things? Problems that come from this world, they are limited to this world. And Stephen is showing that your worst persecution can't reach past the heavens. Your worst trial cannot reach past the heavens where God is sitting and reigning and ruling. There's no place of brick and mortar where God is confined. 
There is no place in the world, no person in the world, no event in the world that is outside God's throne. He's sovereign over his footstool. And see what Stephen sees there. That God is not in this temple. What a circumcised heart will see. What a softened covenant ear will hear. What a spirit-regenerated soul will love is to see by faith Christ there for us at the right hand of God. Stephen sees not just that God is not here in the temple, but when he looks to see God in heaven, he sees, verse 55 again, all of it, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Do you have this as a solid tenant in your faith? That Jesus is there for us. That Jesus right now is at the right hand of God. I mean, think about it. Does, does it matter to you where Jesus is and what He's doing and how He got there? It couldn't matter more. It is the heart of the Christian hope. It is a defining distinction between Judaism and Christianity. Stephen seeing Jesus there in the presence of God in heaven is signifying to those in Jerusalem that a covenantal historical shift is taking place. What Jesus came to do is not limited to the earth. It's not limited to this side of death. Jesus came so that we might actually be at peace with God in heaven. That's what it means for Him to be there for us. The New Testament writers teach us to look like Stephen did, to put our minds there and our hope there. We are to count on Jesus being there for us. So it talks about it like this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 through 12. The author of Hebrews working through the difference between the temple that's on the ground in Jerusalem and the heavenly presence of God. To contrast them, Hebrews says, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. You keep offering lambs all day, guys, and that temple over there, it can't take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. Job done. At the right hand of God. Now that's what Stephen saw. The crucified Christ, the Lamb of God, whose blood was shed for our sin on the cross, he resurrected from the dead. When Jesus rose from the dead, where did he go? Did he just go into Solomon's temple? And go worship? Did he take his own blood in, into that temple on, on, on the, the Day of Atonement? No. We, we see at the beginning of Acts, Jesus was on the earth, but then he ascended into heaven. As he went into heaven, he, he waved goodbye, metaphorically speaking, at the earthly temple to the true presence of where God actually is. And now Stephen sees him there. He, he was there to see him ascended in in Acts chapter 1, and now he is seeing that Jesus is there. He got there. He went there. He made it. He's, he's there. 
doing what the Gospel said He was going to, to do. Making for all time a single sacrifice for sins, not in the temple, but in heaven. And I think sometimes we just kind of don't know what to do with Jesus resurrected and ascended. We kind of think Jesus he went up into heaven and He's just kind of hanging out there. It's kind of like an old plane stuck in a hangar and we just got to keep it somewhere for a while. And Jesus floated up into heaven. He's like a museum piece up there. Just, just as a memorial for what He's done. But listen, if Jesus doesn't ascend to heaven, the gospel isn't finished. If Jesus doesn't go into the presence of God, into the throne room of God, it's not done. He did not come to die on the cross and to raise from the dead and then be done. He came to die on the cross, raise from the dead, so that having raised from the dead and pay for our sins, He could take His blood into heaven for us. Hebrews says, For Christ has entered not into the places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. That is Christ there for us. The book of Acts follows the gospel out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. What's the last word that we get from one of the preachers in Jerusalem? When the temple is about to be destroyed historically, when the gospel is leaving Jerusalem and going now out to Judea and Samaria, as the Christians are going to be scattered all over the world, and they're going to be hearing the book of Acts, and they're going to be learning the temples destroyed. They're going to be learning that Christianity and Judaism, at least in Jerusalem, are, are at odds. They're going to be hearing that Stephen saw Jesus made it. He went there. He's there for us. He's there for us. This is Christianity. Not believing in Jesus, not that believing in Jesus means that you, you got the right religion on the earth, but to trust that Jesus is in heaven for you. His sin, or our sin, forgiven by His blood in God's presence. Isn't it great when your debts get canceled on the earth? When your, course, your, your court case gets settled on the earth? How much more having our sin canceled, our debt paid in the courts of heaven itself. The New Testament talks about the presence of Jesus in the throne room of God as wonderful witness and encouragement and challenge to us. It means that Jesus is the highest of majesty. He is God's presence. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, After making purifications for sins, which He did on the cross, then He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Ephesians chapter 2 reminds us that if Jesus has risen from the dead and He now sits at the right hand of God, that we can expect to be with God too. Ephesians 2 says, When we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our position, our place as we put our faith in Christ is now with Him. Think about the power that this means for the kingdom of God. It's one thing to round up a military parade and, and march on a capital city or threaten to conquer a ruler only to make a deal last minute and end up going to that ruler's friend country. But it's another thing to conquer death. It's another thing to conquer death and sit in the throne of heaven. That's power. And look how Paul says it in Ephesians. 
Jesus, or Paul is just praying that Christians would know God's power. You want an example of God's power? Here's what Paul would pray the church in Ephesus would know in order to know God's power in the world. He's praying that you would know, Ephesians 1, 19, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. What is that power? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's power. That's power. No one can do that. Paul says, I want you to know God's power, the power that he worked, that God worked when Jesus raised from the dead and then got seated at the right hand. That's a statement of power. Far above all rule, above all authority, all power, all dominion, above every name that is named, named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. You see that? If Jesus is there, he'll always be there. Not only in this age, but the age to come. Who can overcome Christ? What can overcome Christ? Who can get to heaven? Who's going to kill him? This is power. Think about the freedom from condemnation that comes with Jesus being there for us. The freedom from condemnation that comes with Jesus being there for us. If Jesus is there for us on behalf of our sin, the worst thing you have ever done, the worst person you have ever been, all your failings, all your laziness, all your addiction, all your cheating, all your lying, if God has forgiven you how you spoke to your wife yesterday, if God is willing to forgive you how you lied to your boss, through Jesus, in his blood, in your place. And now Jesus has taken his own blood and he's gone to stand in the presence of God and say, this is the offering for their sin. Who's going to condemn you? Who's coming after you? I mean, what prosecuting attorney is going to take on this case? No one. That's what Paul says. Listen to how Paul says it very precisely in Romans 8.34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that. More than that. Listen, there's more than that. Who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who's going to say something? Who's going to tell what you've done? I mean, this is one of the most deflating things that happens sometimes for children. I won't say whether or not this has happened at our house recently. They think they're really, really going to get their, tr- their sibling in trouble when they say to their sibling, I'm going to tell dad. I'm going to tell dad. I've heard this across our other. I'm just, I'm going to go ahead and tell you what it's like at our house sometimes. I've heard this through the house. I've heard this from the yard. I'm going to tell dad. Only to get there to tell dad, and then be deflated to find out, dad already knows. Dad saw the whole thing. Dad's already dealt with it. Dad's decided to do something he didn't like. God already knows. Christ is there for us. Who's going to say something? Friends, anyone wrestling with sin... Anyone wrestling with their own condemnation in their own heart, take your sins and confess them to God, remembering that God has Christ there for us. You go to God. You look upward. We sing the song, When Satan tempts me to despair, and he tells me of the guilt within, upward I look. 
And I see him there who made an end of all my sin. Let me just ask you this morning, where are you looking? Are you looking like the Jewish leaders uncircumcised in heart and ears, looking for salvation down here on earth, just wanting God to fix the problems on earth, save me from my hardship, make my life a little better down here? Or can you see the Christ there for you? That Christ has been crucified, risen, and entered into God's presence in heaven on your behalf, offering his own blood on your behalf. The, stif- the, the shift that Stephen saw from the temple to the throne in heaven is the same shift that Christians should make in how we think about life in the world. Shift our eyes from here to seeing Christ for us there. This is how Paul teaches us to think. It's the only way to actually see life on earth accurately. Our own sin, our own struggles, our own pain, our own persecution. It's the only way to put things here on earth is perspective. After talking in chapters 1 and 2 in the book of Colossians about how if we put our faith in Christ, we've died with Him, we've raised with Him. If that's true, if we're united with His death and resurrection like Romans 6, here's what Paul encourages us to do. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Seated at the right hand of God. Seek the things that are there. Set your minds on things that are above, not things that are on earth. If that's you, if you by faith are united in Christ's death and resurrection, don't look down here for meaning. Don't look down here for purpose and hope. Keep going back to looking for Christ who is there for us. If you came today here and you're not a Christian, you're wondering what it means to be a Christian, this is it. It means to quit looking around the world for solutions. Quit trying to find things that you can see with your eyes and actually see with your heart. By faith, that Christ actually is God's Son. who came to die for your sins and He is there for you. That your answer is not even in this world. It's in the throne of heaven where Christ is for you. That's what it means. That He died, that He rose, and that He then ascended. There's not a single problem, not a single dilemma, not a single brokenness, a single sin that you've committed or a sin that has been committed against you which is not more clear and forgiven by seeing Christ before God in heaven. Stephen was stoned. Which means rocks were being thrown at his head. Where's Stephen's mind? Where's his heart? How does Stephen feel about the bad guys? In Acts chapter 7, verse 59, the last couple of verses there, as they were stoning Stephen, where was his mind? He called out to the Lord who is in heaven at the right hand of God, receive my spirit. Bring me home. As he dies, he's not looking, he's not talking, he's not hoping for anyone in this world to save him. He goes through death to Christ, trusting that he's there for him. Even in death, his confidence about his life is there with Christ. Friends, this is the confidence that is beneath evangelism, that's beneath speaking the truth in love, that's beneath apologizing, that's beneath the entire Christian life, that Christ is there for you. And listen lastly, in verse 60, it's the foundation for absolute graciousness. Last thing Stephen says, falling on his knees, rocks flying at him, trusting God in heaven has him in Christ, the last thing he says, how Christ-like is this, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. 
If your vindication is up there in heaven, Christ there for you, you don't have to hold on to justification in the world so tightly. You don't have to hold on to vindication here so tightly. You can forgive. You can be gracious to other people. If people do wrong to you, you can know that their only hope is Christ. You can be forgiving. You can wish that they could see. You can wish that they could hear. Because no matter what they do to you, here, Christ is there for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the gospel of Jesus Christ. What he accomplished here on earth by his life, his death, and by his resurrection, but more importantly, what he is accomplishing there for us now, having completed the gospel of payment for sins. And as surely, as confidently as we believe he has died and has raised and has ascended, we wait. We look now, Father, by hearts of faith, seeing Christ is there for us. We're thankful that his ministry did not end on earth, but that he did it. He did what he set out to do, which was offer purification for sins in your presence, that we might be forgiven. Help us enjoy this this week ourselves. Help it raise our affections. Help it motivate us to obedience. Help it... Help us hold the worldly things loosely. Help us trust. Give us hearts and eyes to see, ears to hear. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.